for sitting there at a Japanese restaurant. And I kind of just showed him my rough presentation materials, showed him the performance, showed him the process. And he, he looks at me and he goes, James, it's, you know, great performance. Great. It, it looks like you have a best in class process. I want to invest and I want to seed it. But the reason I want to seed it is because of you, because I want to back oh. you as a person. And, you know, that's people back people. And that was kind of a light bulb moment that, yes, everything else has to be good, but it's really about the person. Hey, my name is Stacey Havener. I'm obsessed with startups, stories, and sales. Storytelling has fueled my success as a female founder in the toughest boys club, Wall Street. I've raised over $8 billion that has led to $30 billion in follow-on assets for investment boutiques. You could say against the odds. Yeah, understatement. I share stories of the people behind the portfolios while teaching you how to use story to shape outcomes. It's real talk here. Money, authenticity, growth, setbacks, sales and marketing are all topics we discuss. Think of this as the capital raising class you wish you had in college, mixed with happy hour. Pull up a seat, Grab your notebook and get ready to be inspired and challenged while you learn. This is the Billion Dollar Backstory Podcast. People spend so much time talking about what they do. It's a natural question when we meet someone new. So what do you do? But it's not the whole story. What you do isn't nearly as important as who you serve, how you help, who you are and why you do what you do in the first place. If you want people to choose you as their guide, they need to know you, they need to like you, they need to trust you. And in order to do that, they need to see you. Your prospects and clients are the heroes of the story. You are the guide. My guest today does a fabulous job of using the power of story to let us see him as a guide, but my goodness, I ended this conversation also seeing him as a hero. James Fletcher is the founder and portfolio manager of Ethos Investment Management. The firm is relatively new, but the team isn't. James is an experienced emerging markets portfolio manager with a strong history of alpha generation and top quartile performance. Most recently, he was the director and senior portfolio manager of the EM Smidcap Fund at APG Asset Management, where he managed a billion-dollar portfolio, one of the largest EM Smidcap funds in the world. From 2013 to 2016, James was the lead portfolio manager at Kane Anderson Rudnick's EM Small Cap Fund, ticker VIESX. Previously, he was a senior analyst at Westwood Global Investments. He's also the founder of the global nonprofit Young Investors Society, which we'll talk about today, and has an undergrad degree from BYU. He's fluent in Portuguese and proficient in Spanish and has lived in Brazil and Hong Kong. I hope his story inspires you, not only as someone you should know, follow, and hopefully meet, I also hope it inspires you to do work that matters to the people you serve, lean into a mission, and lead with authenticity. I spend a lot of time talking about that. Today's episode is a masterclass in being about it. I am honored to introduce you to my friend, James Fletcher. Let's dive in. James, thank you so much for being here today. This is a true pleasure for me. We're friends and we always have such great chats. And so this is like, I can't wait to let people be a fly on the wall in our conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stacey. And I just have so much admiration for you and what you do for our industry. It's just such an honor and congrats on the podcast. I mean, congrats. Oh, thank you. So excited for you. Oh, I appreciate it. It's a journey for sure. And an adventure. And speaking of journeys and adventures, that's actually where I want to start. I would love, you know, this is a podcast about storytelling. This is a podcast about the people behind the portfolios. Yeah. And this is also my favorite part. So I'd love for you to tell us your backstory. 
And you can start wherever you want, because a lot of times some of the transformation for people starts early and kind of weaves its way through their career. Yeah, I'd love to. In a nutshell, I've been doing emerging market equities for 18 years. But really, I'd say my journey started um, when I was nine years old, uh, sitting on my grandpa's lap. He was a famous scientist, actually, but his passion and his hobby on the side was stock market investing. And he pulled me on his lap and showed me the Wall Street Journal. And he went through his investment accounts. And we would kind of do this every Saturday. He would show me the stocks he was buying and why he was buying it. And ever since that day, I've just had this love, this passion for investing When I was in high school, I read Warren Buffett for the first time and really probably like a lot of fund managers, it just flipped my world upside down. You know, quotes like, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy and the value of good companies is better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. It just resonated so much and I just fell in love with investing. But I say really the arc of my trajectory changed a lot. When I 19 years old, I served a, a church service mission in Brazil, actually okay. similar to another of your podcast guests, yes. uh, Crosby, who served in the Philippines. And it was just a transformational experience for me. I fell in love with the Brazilian people and fell in love with really other cultures and other people and languages. And so I came back to college and had this love of investing, but also then had this love for developing countries and just said, you know, my dream would be to invest in Brazil and get to use my Portuguese. I got hired, um, which at hindsight was extremely fortunate at a fund in Boston called Westwood Global Investments which um, went on to be one of the leading investment funds in emerging markets. I started as a Latin American analyst and then started covering Asian stocks and then Eastern Europe and Africa. We were a small team at the time, um, just managing $200 million, but it was really a Buffett-style approach of concentrated investing, a lot of due diligence on management teams, focused on quality businesses and that fund grew to $10 billion. We were one of the top oh my gosh. funds over the period. We launched EM Small Cap. And I'd say that was another pivot for me where I just fell in love with small, oftentimes family-owned businesses that are oh, maybe billion-dollar businesses that are growing to $10 billion. And so we launched EM Small Cap. That was successful. Then I was hired at Kane Anderson Rudnick, uh, based in Los Angeles, a $40 billion EM or asset management fund. And I launched EM Small Cap for them, became a portfolio manager. A couple of years later, APG Asset Management, which was Netherlands' largest pension fund, 600 billion euros in assets that they manage, asked if I would spearhead launching EM Small Cap for them. And then a year and a half ago, launched Ethos Investment Management after a successful track record with APG Asset Management. And ever since those days, those early days, um, being part of a boutique, being part of a small team and seeing how successful that was, that was always the dream. And so when I got seed investors and was able to launch Ethos Investment Management, Really, it's just that combination of my love for people, my love for emerging markets, and just that being part of an independently owned, aligned, mission-oriented fund um, that brings us to where we are today. Wow. And you know what's so interesting about it as you were talking? There's obviously such an amazing thread on your experience in Brazil and kind of falling in love with emerging markets. Yeah. But I also love the thread of you were launching these strategies and funds inside mm-hmm. of, you know, much bigger organizations. Yes. So yes. now here you are as a founder and as an entrepreneur, I want to talk about that. But you've had a little bit of tastes of that along the way because you were launching things inside these larger asset management structures, which exactly probably felt entrepreneurial, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. I think I was born an entrepreneur. I love building things. I love the excitement that comes from it and creating something out of nothing and being part of teams and seeing that success. Yes. It's just fun. I mean, it's exciting. It's so fun. And uh, we'll talk about Young Investor Society later, but starting the founding a nonprofit and building that was 
exciting as well. I think the world is great. It's abundant. There's lots of opportunities. And so, yeah, being able to build and create is something that's always just been exciting for me. Same for me. It is. There's nothing like it. And especially in the early days, which you're living right now. I mean, it's super challenging. The hardest part of the whole thing. But it's also so rewarding. So fun. It's so fun. And now I have a question about your grandfather. I love that part of the story. So being a scientist. Yeah. Did he sort of buy into the fundamental research or was he more quantitative? Like, I'm just curious what his, because science obviously being so black and white, was there something there from him that you think you've carried forward? Yeah, good question. He was very much um, long-term innovative companies and management teams. Okay. My my grandpa was actually the president of NASA twice during the 70s and 80s. Oh my goodness. Um, Okay. And and all of his brothers were all scientists. So the Fletcher family is a very um, science-led family. The fact that I sold out and am focused on on, (laughs) on investing in finance is uh, maybe a disappointment to the Fletcher (laughs) family. But, you know, his philosophy, I think, shaped mine as well. It was very focused yeah. on what are the products, the innovations that are going to be successful 10, 20 years in the future, and how can we invest behind it? Wow, that is super fascinating. So you're sort of the rebel of the family over here in yes, the investment yes, space. I'm the yes, I love Lisner it. Of, of the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're rebels. <laughs> okay, so let's stay with this a little bit because I think, too, you've seen a lot of different things. I love the Westwood connection because that was led by a woman. If I, yes. So, and one of the pioneers Mm -hmm. um, really in the space. So when you envision, like, what does success look like for you? So you've set out to build ethos and it doesn't just have to be monetary. I think that's something I really want people to understand. Like success isn't just about numbers and dollar signs. Success is more than that. So for you, what does success look like? You mentioned diversity, so maybe start there. Like, mm-hmm. like our yeah. mission is threefold. We want to build a world that's more equitable, healthy, and prosperous for all. And we're investing in a world in emerging markets, which is 85% of the world's population. And so all of what we do, the way we engage companies, the type of companies we invest in, the way we build a team internally, the way we give back through charitable giving is all with the focus that diversity and having more minorities as part of the conversation is critical and Mm -hmm. helping health and wellness and benefit of society is what leads to long-term growth and prosperity in all of its forms. So engagement in governance, engagement, improving profit structures. So yeah, I mean, I've been blessed, as you mentioned, to work with some amazing female portfolio managers in my career. And from my perspective in emerging markets, it's having diversity of team members from Korea and India and China Absolutely, and Brazil. Yes. And I'm just such a believer in diversity, different mindsets. And really, I think through investing, we can you know make a difference. And then through ethos, like we intend to deliver great returns for clients, which we have in the past. And um, through these returns... We want to basically leave a legacy that you don't have to be short term. You don't have to only focus on profits that the investing game, I think like Warren Buffett taught sort of quality and long term adds to investment returns. My legacy is I want to add another portion to that is that company culture also adds to investment returns. So when we combine quality long-term and company cultures and have a positive impact on society, I think many in the industry would say, ah, you're going to have to sacrifice returns and that's going to hurt long-term performance. The legacy I want to leave is that, no, this is actually going to lead to long-term outperformance. And so that's the legacy that we want to leave. I love it. It's a myth. And a lot of people, I think, carry that with them, that bias about ESG or, you know, social responsibility that you have to sacrifice performance. So you're a myth buster. Not only are you a rebel, but you're a myth buster. So I love it. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Ultimus Fund Solutions. Since our founding in 1989, we believe that alternative investments are integral part of client portfolios. Unfortunately, Delivering high-quality hedge funds and private market exposures has always been a challenge for the wealth management industry. 
These type of alternative investments introduce unique challenges related to taxes, qualifications, paperwork, and reporting. As a result, high net worth investors tend to be significantly underallocated to both hedge funds and private markets relative to institutional investors. That's Stephanie Lang, Chief Investment Officer from Homrick Berg, an $11 billion RIA headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, that serves over 2,700 clients in 46 states. You can tell they believe in helping high net worth clients access hedge funds and other alternative investments. They are equally as passionate about broadening that access for all their clients, not just qualified purchasers or a select group of accredited investors. Meet Nick Darsh from Ultimus with some backstory. Hallmark Berg created a 3C1 fund in January 1999 to provide their high net worth and institutional investors with ready access to a diversified portfolio of hedge funds. As interest in the fund grew and the constraint of the 100 investor rule loomed, HB began exploring ways to continue expanding the investor pool without negatively affecting existing shareholders. We'll hear more about the creative fund conversion work that made it possible later in the show. Now, back to the program. It's funny because I wanted to ask you a question. Well, I have a question for you later that talks about legacy. So we're going to come back to it and you'll have to see if you want to elaborate on that. So you probably hit on it here, but one of the things I really find critical to a good story is uniqueness. And I think it's something we struggle with in the asset management space. You mentioned company culture. I think it's an issue at the company level. It's also an issue for us as humans because we want to blend in. And so when someone asks us what makes you different, we tend to go to things that everybody else says. Mm. I, I often say to people, you know, if you're if you're writing your website, for example, yeah. and you read the copy on your website, and you could insert any asset management firm's name yeah. in that particular sentence, it's not a good enough sentence because it's not specific to you. Yeah. So I share that with you to really kind of empower you mm. to share with us what makes you different. What's unique about Ethos? Yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned, um, there's thousands of funds out there. What I've seen, though, is the reality is there's few funds that do what we do. So highly concentrated, extensive due diligence, a differentiated focus on quality. And then I would add a differentiated focus on long-term company cultures, long-term governance, and long-term ESG factors within a portfolio. So I attend at investor conferences with the majority of our industry, and so much of the questions are focused on quarterly earnings and, you know, one outlook. And our conversations with companies and the due diligence is way different, right? So it's very strategic, very long-term. We're partnered with the owners of the business over the long run. And companies appreciate this. It's a different perspective yeah. than they get from most investors. As as you know, when you do a discounted cash flow model, 75% <laughs> of the value of any business comes after year five. Yet so much of our industry is focused on next quarter, next year, and they're adding 100 stocks to the portfolio to try and time the right cycle over the next quarter. For us, it's so much about that year five to year 30 What does the business look like? What do the people look like? What does the culture look like? And so that approach, it just changes how you do due diligence. It changes how you engage with the company and how you build that long-term relationship. Wow. I love that. Also, I feel like you need... Do you know Paul Black? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's one of their... You know, this company culture, like you, I, I hear lots of people talk about what they do as investment managers. And I literally have only heard company culture from two people in my entire career, Paul Black and you. And I think it changes the conversation you have with the companies that you're doing due diligence on. It also changes the conversation you have with investors. Exactly. Exactly. And so I love that. You're digging into a different side. And that focus on what happens after year five is very different. And I think that will change the conversation you have with your investors as well. 
Because you're taking everybody out of the weeds and sort of saying like, let's pick our heads up here. Exactly. And look around and have a longer outlook, which everyone thinks they have, but do they really if they're focused on quarterly performance? Yeah. With everything else in in our life, it's you're constantly learning, you're constantly adding. For me, it was probably about 2015, 2016. I read a paper by Alex Edmonds. So he was at London School of Economics. And basically his paper looked at the hundred best companies to work for by glass.com. Mm. And it just took those hundred every year and it created a portfolio of those best companies to work for rated by employees. And that portfolio outperformed the market by three and a half percent alpha over the past 50 years. And he shows that, you know, and, and we're, we're looking so much for sources of alpha. And here I thought there's no way that just glass door ratings could be a predictor of, of long term alpha. And the more work we did on it, the more we realized that company culture is just something that wow. is this undiscovered gem of outperformance. If you find those Googles and those Starbucks of the world early on with that unique, powerful company culture. It's a predictor of returns. It's a predictor of revenue growth, of profit growth. And so ever since that day, like we've developed scorecards and we analyze um, different factors and metrics from the outside. Actually, Paul at WCM is a good friend of mine. And and we sort of through, you know, that process of, of analyzing from the outside. And I'd say I'm all about finding inefficiency in what is a very competitive, efficient market. So that's why we're focused on emerging markets. We're focused on small cap. But what we found is company cultures as well is difficult to analyze, but it's a powerful predictor of long-term returns. That is so cool. I love that. And to me, it also sort of ties in, you know, being the storyteller in the room here, you know, that culture, it's their story. It's their story. And I love what you said about the small cap EM space, a lot of those businesses being family owned. You know, here in the US, we don't see that as much, but certainly in Europe and in other countries, family owned businesses are still thriving. They're a real thing. And there's a lot of nuance and I would imagine I'm not a portfolio manager, but a lot of differences in analyzing a company like that than one that's here in the States sort of focused on quarterly earnings. Exactly. Super cool. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. And I am here. I am the first one buying the ticket to the Paul Black James Fletcher roadshow on company (laughs) culture. I am so here for that. I'm going to ask you one more question about the biz. Yeah. Because... I think there's a perception, maybe not so much in EM, but I'd be curious to your thoughts, that boutiques are at a disadvantage. Mm. For instance, if I wanted to play devil's advocate here, I might say, sure, James, like it's really great that this is what you do, but you're in Utah and there are companies who cover emerging markets who have feet on the ground and all these things. Like there's a lot of things I could say that maybe put you at a disadvantage. And how do you respond to that? Yeah. So, you know, emerging markets, I mean, just as a, as in a nutshell, right? Emerging markets is 85% of the world's population. It accounts for 60% of the world's GDP. And yet it's only on average 6% of investors allocation. So relative to the economic footprint, EM is way, way underinvested by most institutional investors and retail investors. So it's a unique asset class. And, and these are growing economies, by the way. EM is going to grow six times faster than developed markets this year in 2023. Developed markets are going through recessionary cycles, and a lot of countries in EM are still growing strongly. So you're operating at a, at a low base where you can grow from. Relative to me, it requires a lot of travel. So I travel to 12 yeah. countries a year. We meet with three to 400 management teams a year. I've wow. lived in Brazil. I've li- I just got back from Hong Kong where we lived for five years and was traveling to mainland China, you know, every month and Korea and India. It does require a lot of extra attention. Um, it's not that. I could just start an EM fund based in Salt Lake. It's that I've had 18 years of on the ground, building relationships, knowing companies. That being said, there's a lot of opportunity. These are growing markets. It's inefficient. The indices are terrible, right? They're very focused on (laughs) 
just a few <laughs> large cap companies. Yeah. And then a lot That's of so state-owned banks and oil companies and materials companies. And so the reality is it's low-hanging fruit for for active investors. And then what we think sets us apart is our approach. It's a private equity style approach. We do two to three months of due diligence before investing in emerging markets. Governance is a huge risk. Fraud is a risk, regulatory, political risk. And so we're interviewing customers, former employees, channel checks, um, talking to the owners of businesses. So I'd say even more so important than developed markets and emerging markets, those channel checks that due diligence is crucial. And yeah, but you find businesses that are at a low stage where you can invest for the growth. I mean, one of the companies that comes to mind, we invested in a company in India called Varun Beverages. So like we're talking about, this is a family-run business, the Jaipuria Mm -hmm. family, and the market leader of Pepsi bottling and Pepsi distribution in India. Company IPO'd in in 2016. Jaipuria family was well-regarded. At the time, just so you have an idea, India was at seven liters per capita of soft drink consumption compared to the global average of 92 liters per year. So, So you see opportunity for them to 10x their penetration of soft drinks. And what we found out from Varun Beverages was that they were a premier partner of Pepsi globally. So they were growing double digits. Pepsi was giving them more and more territories. We interviewed Pepsi employees and they're like, oh man, the Jaipuria family, they are our best executors of bottling in the world. Amazing efficiency. And um, after that, it's I mean, not a no-brainer, but these opportunities are are fantastic. So over that period, Varun has gone from 40% of India bottling to now 86% as Pepsi's given them more and more territories. Their core volumes have grown 18% per year. They've improved profitability. Revenues have gone up 4x. Profits gone up 6x. And the stock price has gone up 10x over that period. Wow. And you say, you know, how can you find a 10-bagger? But then looking back, it's pretty easy. I mean, Pepsi's giving them territories. The penetration is so low and and people are improving their purchasing habits. And uh, they have these iconic brands of Gatorade and Pepsi and 7-Up and Mountain Dew. And so we're excited. What a great story. Find these ideas. That's so cool. And, you know, I think going back to the question about being a boutique. And by the way, I want to come back to your travel too. But going back to the question about being a boutique, I think also what's interesting for you, you mentioned you're concentrated. Yeah. So how many holdings do you have? So we have 30 to 50 stocks in the portfolio. It's about 40 40 stocks right now. So it's, but our top 10 is nearly 40% of our portfolio. Okay. And what's your turnover? Turnover is low. So it's 20% a year. And it's, so when we say we're long-term investors, 20% 20% turnover is on average, we're holding companies for five to 10 years. So exactly. So again, if we're responding to the people who say, oh, here you are in Salt Lake, and you know, there are other companies who have people all over the globe. You know, I think what's interesting is you're not trying to find hundreds and hundreds of companies to invest in. Exactly. You're really looking for the gems that fit exactly your criteria. You're not turning over the portfolio often. Mm-hmm. You're using this private equity approach. So it's not like you need to go find, you know, a gaggle of companies to throw in this portfolio every year. Exactly. And I think that lends itself to being more specialist, more specialized and and having a smaller team. So that was great. And that story was, was awesome. Exactly. By the way, and I want to come back to this. I love your LinkedIn posts where you mm. show it's kind of like from the road and you'll, it'll yes. be a picture of you wherever yeah. you are. Yes. And you do like these really cool breakdowns of what's happening in the country. I yeah. love those. Yeah. So I'm also a plus one on more of those posts Good. because I Good. think it's so great to feel like we're with you on the trip. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. My, so my, if you don't my, follow James, <laughs> you have to. My post in India two months ago was, um, yeah, viewed over a hundred thousand times, but it was forwarded to President Modi because I had talked about oh. India's made in, made in India push for manufacturing in India. And it was forwarded to Modi who complimented it and said, Oh, how great it is that institutional investor is, is complimenting our policy. So yeah, I mean, the power of social media wow. these days, I think is, is critical. 
Why don't we stay with that then? Because it's something I, I talk about a lot, which is the industry, especially our industry, but maybe it's all industries, really tries, there's a a bias, I think, to sort of playing down the people Mm. and playing up other parts of process maybe or really highlighting performance, right? So it's kind of not people first in general. And in my experience working with boutiques and helping them grow, especially early adopter investors really do put people first. And there's been studies that qualitative due diligence is as important if not more important than quantitative due diligence. And that's from the standpoint of the allocator. Yeah. So Kaya did a, f- a fabulous study on that. So when we take all of that and then we try to square it with the fact that here are these portfolio managers and people in the industry who aren't willing to sort of step up and say, here's who I am. Here's why I do what I do. Here's who I am as a person. It's challenging. And I think your post in India really speaks to that. Like people want to see it. They want to know you before they choose you. And so how have you been able to deal with that, kind of getting in touch with your authenticity as a portfolio manager? Yeah. So I'm blown away sometimes at the reception that I'll get traveling to a country, putting up a short positive post about what I see going on. I'm blown away at the reception. I think our industry is hungry for authenticity, for real stories, and you know, getting away from sort of the cliches or just, just the marketing or compliance yeah. wording that you're supposed to say. I think our industry is hungry for authenticity. Maybe just a story of founding ethos. I, I think um, this resonates with 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 your mantras as well. Um, when I was putting out some feelers to get seed capital to launch my own fund and really pursue, you know, my long term dream, I was I met with this successful private equity uh, a group out of Japan, and I had known one of the managing directors, and we went to lunch. We're sitting there at a Japanese restaurant, and I kind of just showed him my rough presentation materials, showed him the performance, showed him the process. And he, he looks at me and he goes, James, it's, you know, great performance. Great. It it looks like you have a best in class process. I want to invest and I want to seed it. But the reason I want to seed it is because of you, because I want to back you as a person. And, you know, that's people back people. And that was kind of a light bulb moment that, yes, everything else has to be good, but it's really about the person, especially when you're launching a fund and when you're you're early and you're building a business and there's so many balls in the air, you're really backing a person. And so I've never forgotten that. And I think that just stays yes. in my mind is that investors are going to back people and it's important to be authentic. It's important to, you know, do what you say you're going to do. And it's important, I think, to have a just cause, to have a mission, to have a, you know, something exciting behind it. And I think that resonates in our industry. I love that story. I mean, I could just, I could just start, you know, doing the running man. (laughs) I mean, I love that story. That is such a phenomenal story. And I think, and I appreciate that you shared it because it's easy when we're sitting there getting ready for a pitch to tell ourselves, okay, what the investor wants to hear is this. Like we tell ourselves what they want to hear and we're not right. Yeah. Yeah. And how great that that person said to you, you know, this is all awesome, but I just want you to know it's not the reason. And I hope you keep that with you, even as you meet with investors, fund investors or strategy investors, and as you grow, because I think it's a universal truth Mm. that people do business with people in every industry, even this one. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you shared that. Gosh, that is so good. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Ultimus Fund Solutions. When we first launched our internal fund of funds as a limited partnership, it was a great option for us to be able to provide 100 of our accredited and qualified purchaser clients with access to a diversified portfolio of hedge fund strategies. However, fast forward to 2016, our firm had grown to manage over $4 billion and serve over a thousand clients of various sizes, accreditations, and tax situations. We still firmly believe that high quality hedge fund exposure is important to client portfolios. It provides stability, 
to client portfolios and generates a return stream that was not available in public and equity and fixed income markets. Unfortunately, the 3C1 structure with its slot limitations, high minimums, and K1 reporting was no longer ideal solution for our growing and complex client base. We looked at various alternative options with third-party hedge fund managers, liquid hedge mutual funds, but also discovered that we had an opportunity to register our fund with the SEC, preserve its extensive track record, and solve all of the issues that the 3C1 structure was creating for our business and clients. That's when we teamed up with Ultimus to begin the process of registering our legacy fund with the SEC and converting it to a tender offer fund. We'll hear more later in the show. Now, back to the program. Let's talk about Young Investors Society. I have been lucky to be involved a little bit here and there. And yeah, yeah, we had fun, didn't we? Um, I tried to keep it fun. And just tell us, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, why did you start this? And sort of what's the why behind it? Yeah. So uh, Young Investor Society, in a nutshell, it's uh, becoming the CFA Institute for high school age students. We're now in 1,750 schools in 70 countries. It's focused on high school age kids learning about the stock market, but also personal finance and financial literacy. Yeah, I mean, the story behind it, it started with a letter, really. I was volunteering at SIFMA's The Stock Market Game, and they had investment professionals. We were living in LA at the time. I was a scoutmaster, so I enjoyed working with youth. And I was volunteering at high schools, just doing uh, guest uh, speaker assignments. And I went into Roy Ball Academy, which is in inner city Los Angeles, very low income community. 99% of the kids were Hispanic. And I walked into that classroom and said, all right, let's talk about investing. What's in your portfolio, your, you know, stock market game portfolio. And they said, well, because the stock market game is trying to beat your classmates and, you know, simulated stock market performance over three months. And, you know, so they were saying we're invested in triple leverage ETF and loss making (laughs) biotech company and basically taking as much risk as you possibly can (laughs) in a, in a simulated portfolio. And, you know, I, every time I'd have to go, whoa, 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 guys, this isn't investing, right? Investing is what company do you want to be the owner of in 10 years and why? What makes that a good business? Mm-hmm. Why would you want to be the owner of it? That day, um, you know, to those Roy Ball students, I said, you know, I invest in Mexico. I invest in Latin America. Here's some companies I've invested in. Our industry's looking for diversity. We're looking for different cultures, different languages. I talked about how I had an analyst that was from Mexico and I got a number of letters after that visit, but one of the letters was from a young man named Edgar. And he wrote me and he said, Mr. Fletcher, thank you for visiting my class before. He said, you probably won't believe it, but that 45 minutes has changed my life. And he said, (gasps) he said, no adult has ever shown that they cared before and visited my class. And um, he said, I now want to go to college. I now want to pursue a degree in finance. And that phrase that Edgar said, no adult has shown that they cared before, just would not leave my head. And uh, I went to someone from Merrill Lynch that was retiring. I went to someone from Harvard Business School. And I said, let's create a program that teaches investing the right way, teaches long-term fundamental investing, and let's be a bridge between kids like Edgar and our industry and financial professionals that care. And so I founded Young Investor Society. We kind of modeled it after the CFA Institute where they do the stock research competition as their flagship event. And that rewards uh, analysis and presentation rather than short-term stock performance. That year, I had um, I had a group of teens that would come over to my house every Wednesday. They'd sit around my dining room table and I would just, I would just teach them about PE ratios and discounting cash flows and industry analysis. And then at the end of the class, you know, I'd say, okay, what worked? What didn't work? And they'd be like, yeah, this was boring. And at the end of the... <laughs> <laughs> At the end of that year, we had developed lessons and and content. We did a stock pitch competition. We had six schools participate that first year. 
And then it just caught fire, Stacey. I mean, the next year we grew to 50 schools. And then, yeah, now seven years later, we're at 1,700 schools in 70 countries. CFA Institute's been a great partner for us. Um, and we've had, you know, banks and financial institutions that have, have really backed it and amazing volunteers. Like wow. You and so many others. But it always goes back to that story of Edgar and being that Edgar. bridge between adults that care and kids that Edgar the, that don't wow. see that bridge to college in the future. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I mean, amazing. I was not ready yeah, for that. That so. was an amazing story. I can only imagine. That is just unbelievably powerful. And I hope you kept the letter. I did. Yep, I did. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that is priceless. Now, if people wanted to get involved, so if I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is amazing. I would love to get involved or I know a school in my community that would benefit from this? Can they? And how do they do that? Yeah. So there's lots of ways. I mean, you can go to YIS, younginvestorsociety.org, and you can volunteer. You can sign up as a volunteer. The reality is we have two full-time staff, but we're really run by volunteers. So volunteers do stock pitch judging. They do investment symposium speaking. They mentor access schools. I mean, like, like we talked about, the whole goal is to be a bridge between our investment community and kids like Edgar, or you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn and we have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers that speak at a school that help out at schools that judge and yeah, it's just an amazing experience. It's an amazing bridge. So I would be personally grateful for anyone that hears this and wants to get involved. Oh, that is so inspiring. I love that story. Um, okay, I want to end with one more question. Yeah. Going back to entrepreneurship, and then I want to do a really fun round with you. Okay, good. So I've got some kind of fast questions, but my last or bigger question is just about this entrepreneurial journey. And I mean, you have had actually many entrepreneurial journeys, as I've learned in this conversation, I mean, including Young Investors Society. Feel free to take it beyond ethos just in all your experience as an entrepreneur. What have been some of the biggest challenges or biggest positive surprises that if someone's sitting here saying, I want to do my own thing or launch my own firm, whether that's a financial advisory firm or a fund company or even a, a nonprofit, what advice do you have? That's a great question. So I remember in the 2008 financial crisis, Westwood Global talking to one of the partners there, going through sort of the market turmoil and asking him you know, what it was like to be an entrepreneur through this difficult time. And he said, it's by far the best decision I've ever made. And if people knew the fulfillment and the upside potential from being an entrepreneur, then many, many more people would do it. And so I never forgot that and always said, yeah, at some point, that's the goal. And I would say that is absolutely true. So one of the positive surprises for me, both on Young Investor Society and Ethos is Yes, it's a lot of work. Yes, yes, it's incredibly difficult. Yes, you have a thousand balls in the air that you're juggling every day. (laughs) Yes, it never goes as fast as you'd like it to or as easy. Oh, preach. Yeah. But it is so much more fulfilling than you would imagine. And that's just the reality. And so, like, we built Young Investor Society and Ethos around a mission, a vision, a just cause that we really believed. We built it around a gap in the market that was not being filled, both in you know serving teenagers and investing long-term quality in emerging markets. And honestly, I've been surprised at how many people have rallied around it. The support Young Investor Site, it blows me away that we're in 71 countries and I'm getting emails from, you know, kids around the world that it's changing their life and volunteers. You know, we've met Mark Cuban twice and Damon John and so many portfolio managers just just volunteer their time because they care. And same thing for Ethos. I mean, everyone said raising money is so difficult and operations is so difficult. But I think when you have authenticity and a just cause and a mission behind it, it's been incredibly fulfilling. 
Yeah, I'd say I that's the biggest that. surprise actually is that yes. is how fulfilling and enjoyable it is despite the stress, despite the hard work, despite the late nights. It's just been incredibly fulfilling. And I think that is so good because you need that. Yeah. You need that to carry you through those late nights and those long hours and the, you know, all the balls in the air that you're juggling that crash down on your head, by the way, don't forget that part. (laughs) Right. And so if you don't have the fulfillment and if you don't have the why, and if you're not having fun, then don't do it. Then it's not aligned yet. That was amazing. So, okay. I'm not even going to, okay. I am going to share with you where this comes from, but I know you're not going to know it. Because I feel like whenever I share this, people are like, I don't remember that show. So I'm dating myself here. But there was a show way back when, not a Netflix show, on an actual cable television show called Inside the Actor's Studio. James Lipton was the host. He was a professor. I think it was like SUNY Purchase. It was very kind of cottagey and random. But he would bring actors into his classroom I mean, it would literally be the set was like a class of students. It would be James Lipton sitting with, you know, an actor and he would ask them questions about their career. And it was just this wonderful, authentic conversation. And at the end of every show, I'm telling you way more than I planned on telling you at this point. At the end of every conversation, he would end with his version of Proust's questionnaire. Mm. And the idea of this questionnaire is like there's certain questions you can ask somebody that help you understand who they are as a person. So I've kind of put together a little bit from the Proust questionnaire, which is rather long, a little bit from James Lipton's questionnaire to come up with some questions that help us know James Fletcher even more. Okay, very good. Okay, are you ready? Nervous, yep, we're ready. Okay, don't be nervous. It's going to be fun. I hope it's fun. Okay, what book inspires you? We're starting with an easy one. I hope. What book inspires you? Uh, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen has been transformational for me. What a book. If people haven't read that book, get it. That is fabulous. Okay. Now you mentioned a lot of different places you've lived. So this is going to be interesting. (laughs) What place inspires you? Yeah, I have lived and traveled a lot, but I'd say my happy place is just sitting on my deck, watching the sun go down, thinking about companies and the markets with my kids around me. I think that's... Oh, that's a... That's a wonderful picture. And I can relate to that because I think when you travel, home takes on a whole different level of value, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we talked about when you you and Paul Black go on tour, Mm. I'm the first fan that buys a ticket. So let's go back to that vision. Here you are. It's just you, though. You're walking out onto this stage at some big stadium. What is your walkout anthem? What song do they play as James takes the stage? Oh, good question. I've always liked uh, the Tom Petty song "I Won't Back Down," so we'll we'll call okay. we'll call that we'll call that the classic rock anthem. I love it. That's <laughs> that's perfect. It would be cool if I could like play that on the podcast, but I definitely can't. But we'll pretend. Okay, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd say probably teacher or scientist. I was wondering if you were going to say scientist. Your whole family is cheering right <laughs> so, now. So that I would not be a sellout <laughs> to the Fletcher name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? Uh, how about Instagram influencer? <laughs> <laughs> We talked about social media, but I wouldn't want to have that as a profession. Oh my gosh, that is a great answer. And I, I actually say that in, in some <laughs> seriousness because my my sister is, is an Instagram influencer. Oh, so you know the behind the scenes followers. Yeah, she travels around the world for a living, but it is so much work, so tedious, so fickle that um, it'd be a tough it'd be a tough career. Wow. So that's an inside scoop for anybody that thinks they want to be an Instagram influencer. <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be. You heard it here first. Okay. And last, what do you want people to say about you after you've retired or left the industry? Oh, you know, I think just very simply that I had an impact for good on the world and on people one by one. I think they will. I think they will say that. I think you already are. So thanks, Stacey. 
It's really been such a pleasure to spend time with you today. I hope everyone enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. And James, thank you for your time and your candor and your stories. Thank you, Stacey. Just epic. It's an honor. If you know a fund manager or a founder in the investment world with a great story, drop a note to Stacy at StacyHavener.com and tell me about it. Till next time, I'm Stacy Havener. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our premier brand partner, Ultimus Fund Solutions. The conversion of Armark Berg's LP into an integral fund empowered them to grow the fund from 90 million to over 200 million and expand the reach from 100 investors to nearly 700 new investors and continues to grow today. By pursuing the conversion, Hallmark Berg was able to lower minimums to 25,000, welcome accredited investors in addition to qualified purchasers. The entire conversion process was highly efficient because Hallmark Berg chose to partner with Ultimus and other partners with a proven track record in this type of structure-to-structure product transition. The headlines are often too focused on new interval funds from pedigreed providers, this new fund from this cool big firm, etc. Maximizing a fund's potential through a conversion can be powerful too, as we see in the story of Hallmark Berg. Traditional investment management and alternative investment management are converging. More retail investors are demanding access to non-correlated strategies in illiquid asset classes to complement or supplement public markets exposure. Interval and tender offer funds offer managers a flexible wrapper that combines many of the benefits of both 1940 Act and private fund structures. Interest in these products has increased significantly in the past decade, and we anticipate the volume of both new launches and structure conversions to continue well into the future. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment values may fluctuate, and past performance is not a guide to future performance. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement by Stacey Havener or Havener Capital Partners.